0: I'm just going to go get the speaker. Hey, pst, get over here. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're like me and enjoy the Advent season and the chance to focus on the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Thank you, Fern and Phil, for helping us get focused on the Lord to song this morning. Some questions for you. How many people have, out there have a virus scan on your computer? How many have winter tires on their vehicle? How many people change the batteries in their smoke detectors? Don't put your hand up. How many don't have smoke detectors? Okay. Does anyone have... A 72-hour emergency kit. Okay, everyone should pass this one. Who studies or has studied for an exam? Why do we do these things? We know that the exam's coming. At least you should know when the exam's coming. But we don't know if we'll need those other things, do we? We may need a virus scan. Uh, We may need the winter tires. Uh, Hopefully, we're not going to need that smoke detector. And hopefully, we won't need that 72-hour emergency kit. But we have them to, to be ready just in case something happens, right? Perhaps we'll never need them. Maybe you've been thankful that you did have some of those things. And maybe you regret not having them as you hit black ice or something. Been there, done that. In life, we usually get a second chance if we don't get something right the first time. There may be some consequences if we're not prepared. We may have to take a step back, maybe retake a course, maybe do some work to upgrade that computer or might take a new computer. But short of a critical accident, life goes on and hopefully we learn from our mistakes. The parables we're going to look at this morning are both the wise and the foolish servants and the unfruitful fig tree. While the parables are directed primarily at the leaders of the nation of Israel, they certainly have some application for us. Jesus is going to come back one day. We don't know when that will happen. The Bible is clear that each of us will be examined. Each of us will have to account for our lives. And will stand before a judge one day. And the time will come when there is no second chance to make that decision. We all need to be watching. We all need to be ready for the Master's return. Let's just take a moment and just commit our time to the Lord, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we just pause and just, again, thank you for your love, for the incredible love you sent us. We thank you that at this time of year especially, we remember that Jesus gave up his spot in heaven to come down and live as a man for our sake. What can we say? Thank you, we love you, and it's just so amazing. Father, as we open your word this morning, we just pray that you would just, I pray that you would help me just to bring forth your message, that you would just help us all just to take these words to heart, and just apply them to our lives. May we be ready servants looking to do your will and to serve you, to follow your commands. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage, the first passage this morning, picks up from where Mark Daguerre left off last week. In last week, if you remember, Jesus was talking about trusting in him. He was talking about being ready. Like servants at a wedding feast who are waiting for the Mass, and they don't know what time the Mass is going to show up. He goes on to say that if the person knew what time the thief was going to break in, he would have been prepared. In Luke 12, verse 40, Jesus tells his disciples, You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter then asks him, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And it's possible that Peter was wondering in that previous parable if he was thinking the disciples might be, was he thinking the disciples would be with the servants waiting for the masters? Possibly he was thinking the disciples actually would be with the master instead of with the servants. He may have thought the disciples had a slightly higher status and was looking for confirmation. Jesus answers this question with one of his own. And he says this, this from Luke 12, starting at verse 42. The Lord answered, Who then is a faithful and wise mas- manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming, and then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The manager or the servant in this parable was a slave. Uh, we know that from the word doulos that was used. It was common for slaves, though, to have a significant amount of responsibility. In this case, he was in charge over all the other servants. He had a considerable amount of latitude or freedom to perform his duties. And I know those who follow systems will realize that I've got this backwards. The yes should be on the left and the no on the right. So bear with me. So I'm going to go to the right first. So in the parable, we realize that If the servant obeys the master and does what he's told, when the master comes back and finds him doing that, he's going to get a promotion. We saw that from verse 44. He's going to put him in charge of all his things. If he doesn't, he's going to get caught. The master's going to come back at a time he's not waiting for, and he's going to be put out in a place with the unbelievers. In Proverbs, we read that a servant who deals, deals wisely has the king's favor but his wrath strikes one who shames him. So what does it mean, in this case, to be cut up and assigned a place with the unbelievers? In the context of work, it's not just a demotion. It's like being fired with no chance to redeem yourself. There's no other place that you can go work. No one's going to take you. And even if you want to, you're not going to get a very good reference from the other guy. And by the way, you didn't have that opportunity anyway. The implication for each of us is that God will accept some, and he will reject others. The wise and faithful servants will be accepted, and the foolish ones, who are focused only on themselves, will be rejected. We don't know when he's going to return. The religious leaders in those days failed to guide the people of the nation. They were so caught up in looking after themselves and looking after their own interests. They failed to look after the interests of God, what God had put them in charge to do. Jesus goes on to say, That servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready, does not do what his master wants, will be be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded." And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Those who should be punished will be. But those who should have known better, in this case, those who knew about Jesus, will suffer greater punishment. God entrusts us with more responsibilities as we grow closer to him. He wants us to keep growing and maturing as Christians. We can probably think of examples of This parable on a more localized scale. What's that old saying? When the cat's away, the mice will play? Anyone know of a time when someone, may not have been in your household, hopefully, when someone was away for a period of time and came home to find that something happened that shouldn't have? Maybe he came home and the sitter didn't do what the sitter was supposed to do, or maybe he came home and there was... Know if somebody who came home and there's a party in progress, what was the reaction? At the beginning of Luke's gospel, in chapter 13, as we look at the second parable, we see two references to people being killed in what would be considered national level incidents. In one, Pilate had killed some Galileans. And mixed their blood with the blood of some sacrifices. And in the other, people had died when a tower in Siloam fell on them. Jesus asks whether or not these people were worse sinners than the others. Some assumed that their death was God's divine judgment on them for their sin. Jesus makes it clear, though, that these people were no worse than the others and that everyone needed to repent or perish. Israel as a nation was going in the wrong direction. He then tells them a parable to illustrate this and give them a better picture of what he meant. So this is our second parable from Luke 13. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This specific fig fig tree then was planted in the man's vineyard, which wasn't uncommon. To cut down a fig tree was a big no-no, even if it only produced a little bit of fruit the trees would be carefully tended and the vines would grow up, go around the trees and kind of weave around the branches. And some species of fig trees would take a few years before they would produce fruit. And in this parable, we know that the man was waiting for fruit for three years. So for three years after it should have been producing fruit, it still wasn't. And apparently there are rabbinic writings that show that fertilizing was actually done on occasion as we know in this parable. The person looking after the vineyard would wouldn't hesitate if he had to cut down a barren tree in this case though in this parable he says let's give it another try and then cut it down it doesn't say he'll cut it down but it can be cut down. So what does this mean? The fig tree is emblematic or representative of the nation of Israel and its leaders. In Jeremiah 24, we have an example of just the relation of the fig tree to the the people. And in Jeremiah 24, the people have been taken into exile in Babylon, and God showed Jeremiah two baskets of figs, which are in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early, The other basket had very poor figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Then the Lord asked me, What do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the poor ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Does there see any commonalities in what we've sung this morning and what we're reading? The vineyard, in this case, represents the kingdom of God, which is separate from the nation of Israel. God God called the nation of Israel to be his own. He planted it in a special place in the garden, his kingdom. It didn't bear fruit, however, as it should have. The man who took care of the vineyard, namely Jesus, was told to cut down the tree. The response, though, was to let him nurture the nation, give it another chance, If it still didn't produce fruit, it could be cut down. And I borrowed those thoughts, that perspective from Alfred Edersheim. Uh, We saw some similar considerations, similar reflections uh, in another study that we were doing that I'll, I'll touch on in a bit. The Bible tells us For God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The people, or almost all the people, didn't realize that Jesus was the very Messiah that they had been waiting for, that they were looking for. They expected somebody totally different and they're so caught up in their own traditions, their customs. In other words, they had developed their own interpretation of God's commands, what he told them to do for living, that they looked right past Jesus. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin. We know he performed miracles. He taught as only one from God the Father could teach. He reached out to people and he followed his Father's will even though that took him to death on a cross. What a brutal way to die. And people have come to faith in Christ by trying to disprove the fact that three days later, he rose from the dead. And we also know that Jesus was seen by many of his disciples before he ascended into heaven to be with God the Father. The implication for us in these parables is this. We have a decision to make We have to decide whether we're going to accept or reject the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, into our own lives. God accepts or rejects us based on our response to Jesus. Our acceptance of Jesus as our own Savior and Lord is evidenced by the way we live and whether or not we bear fruit. We don't know when Jesus is coming back again or how long we'll have to make that decision. At some point that window of opportunity is going to close. Who knows? Our day might be today. But we need to be ready. None of us are perfect. Some of us, I like to think so at times, but uh, that's a pretty fleeting thought, especially as I get older. (laughs) I think that even less and less. I know better now. The Bible is crystal clear that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. In Colossians 1, 12-14, the Apostle Paul is talking about giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If there's anyone here who has not come to this realization, I urge you to turn your life over to Jesus today. And if anyone's not sure what I mean, Please come and track me down after the service. Being a disciple or follower of Christ involves following his example. A disciple sticks close to his teacher and is fully committed to being like the teacher. We need to have more than an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. We need to follow him wholeheartedly. I trust that everyone here has at least one person, hopefully more than one person that they're really close to, somebody that you truly care about. So the question is, how do you behave when you're with that person? How do you show that you love them? I suggest that you get to know them, you find out what they like, what they don't like. What excites them? What makes them cringe? When Linda and I were first married, we, like other couples, had to figure out some practices that we're going to come up with. Our own approach to, or tradition, so to speak, for things like Christmas. Where would we spend it? What are the rules in different families about giving gifts? Things like that. If memory serves me correctly, we even had Christmas stockings. So on the first Christmas morning... On the first Christmas morning, I looked inside my stocking and I pulled out a small, fairly light gift. When I unwrapped it, it looked something like this. Okay. Yes, if you couldn't see it, yes, it was a box of envelopes. And when you opened the box, there were envelopes inside the box. Now, there were some other items in my stocking. I think probably some gum, probably a pair of socks. Uh, And stuffed into the bottom was a piece of fruit, probably an apple or an orange. The part I remember, though, most was the box of envelopes. One year, and I won't make that mistake again, I skimped on the stocking stuffers. Linda didn't say much, but she was clearly not happy. It was then I learned just how important this was to her, Linda's dad used to work in retail and in those days he'd have to work extremely late into the night on Christmas Eve. So her parents filled the stockings with little things and they opened the gifts in their stockings in their room and that gave her dad just a little bit more time to sleep after a late night uh, at the store. So in one small way, and perhaps a very strange one, one way that I show love to my better half at Christmas time is to make sure that there are numerous things in our stocking. Now, before, I know last week uh, Mark talked about uh, stuff and, and worried about having too much stuff. So, but in our stockings there's nothing fancy required. So I've wrapped up things like stamps, toothpaste, envelopes, And other things we need around the house. Some of the items that go into our stockings come right out of the pantry. Some of them come right out of the fridge. Doesn't matter. And yes, if you know my wife, Linda, she likes chocolate, so things like chocolate and books and CDs have sometimes made their way into the stockings. Uh, The latest trend is a gift certificate for dinner with a special somebody, and and it better be me. Uh, And she gets a pomegranate instead of an orange. And in case you're wondering, I did get permission to share this story before I put it out here. (coughs) So how do we show love for Jesus? In John 14.23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Not long thereafter, he said, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants because a servant does not own his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. As we noted earlier, or as I noted earlier, each of us needs to be like that wise servant, the one who obeyed, not like the one who decided to follow his own worldly pursuits. And I would submit, you can make your own list, but this is my quick list, that there are three things that help us determine if somebody is truly ready. Love, obedience, and bearing fruit. Jesus showed this in his own life. For example, we read that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Because he obeyed. He did what he was asked. Although he was son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. As we saw earlier from the prophet Jeremiah, God is concerned with our hearts. Our hearts reveal our true selves. They reveal our motivation for what we do. And we see similar verses to this in the New Testament. For example, in Romans, Paul writes, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The third aspect of our, our measuring stick, or uh, of our being ready, is fruit bearing. The owner of the vineyard was going to chop down that fig tree because it didn't produce any fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. We have a, a few educators in here. Um, just uh, some of the things that I've learned is that educators, or one of the things I've learned, is educators have looked into just not only what we need to learn, but how we learn things. And I don't remember the exact percentages, but I'm very comfortable with sharing some general rules on this, that we all learn in different ways. Uh, We learn a bit by hearing. We learn some by reading. We learn more if we have to apply it, and we learn more still if we have to teach it. So I'm going to help you apply and or teach some of the lesson or the message yourself this morning. And we're going to do a responsive reading. Uh, it's number 685 in the hymnal, or you can just follow along. And I will read the light print and ask you to read the dark print. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In these, you once walked when you lived in them. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Indeed. We see a similar message in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Not gonna read all of it, but want to highlight a few verses, or a few parts of verses. The first is this. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and then he goes in and lists, has a a slightly different list, or most of the things are the same on the list that we just read. But in verse 24 he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. As Christians, we're to put these things behind us. We're to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that we should have left behind. We're to put those to death or crucify them, so to speak. When you put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, your sins are forgiven. He paid the price for those when he died on the cross. It's a one-time thing. Salvation is permanent. Jesus said that my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We do, however, slip and do things that may be displeasing to God on occasion. When this happens, we need to admit our, our shortcomings and seek God's forgiveness. You ever see two children who have been fighting, and then they're told to apologize to each other? You can picture? Sorry. Okay, well, that didn't really cut it, but okay, sorry. There, you happy? And you know that they're not really sorry, but they're just saying it to get the parents off their back. They're just playing at it. We can't do that when we go to God after we've done something. We have to be truly sorry for what we've done. Easton's Revised Bible Dictionary talks about two types of repentance. There's one word used that kind of speaks about a remorse or regret for sin, but not necessarily a change of heart and the example of that is in matthew twenty seven three and this is Judas after he had betrayed jesus he He was sorry for what he did, but his repentance was only that it didn't result in the, the change of heart, and it didn't go far enough. When you look at this example, the other part of repentance or the other type of repentance, as mentioned, speaks to a true sense of the individual's guilt. It's a seeking of God's mercy and it's a hatred of sin and wanting to turn away from it and live a life that God wants according to his leading. It recognizes that there's a need for God's mercy. And that's the kind of repentance that we need to have when we do something against God. The operative word here is slip. So when we slip, we seek forgiveness, we move on, and hopefully we're going to learn from that mistake. And this differs from intentional sin. In other words, an intentional pattern or an attitude of willful disobedience towards God. Ah, I know it's wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to keep, And I'm going to keep doing it. And God will forgive me for that is there something in our attitudes or in our behaviors that's putting a barrier between us and God? Is there something in our lives that we need to address so that we can draw closer to him? That we can really say, yes, we're obeying and we're following him? There will be times, sorry, and and if there is and we're not willing to address it, then I would suggest that this puts into question our readiness. We can't be intentionally doing something we know God says is wrong and say that we're Christians, that we're believers, that we're ready for the Master to come back. We know that there's going to be times that we'll be tempted regardless, and we need to work on on that in terms of how we're going to deal with it. In some cases, we might have to avoid situations. Should note, uh, sin can also mean that we're not doing things that we should. So we saw that in the, in the parable, where the servant was supposed to do certain things and failed to. Sin goes both ways. It could be doing something we shouldn't, but it also could be not doing something that we should. As human beings, we're not always good at highlighting our own shortcomings or those areas we need to address. We come up with good reasons sometimes as to why we can't change things in our lives. At least we argue that they're good reasons. We're told to play on our strengths, not our weaknesses. We must, however, be willing to work on any and all areas that are a barrier between us and God. Sometimes we'll have to admit those things ourselves. Sometimes God's going to just get our attention. And if you're like me, you don't really relish the thought of being disciplined. The thought of God kind of giving you a shake and saying, hey, what are you doing here? You need to clean this up in your life. It is, however, a necessary thing if we're going to grow and mature and be closer to the Lord. I would suggest that we appreciate the end result. Sometimes we don't really want to go through the process to get there, but the end result It's going to be worth it. So what fruit are we to bear? What types of fruit are we to bear? Let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we demonstrate these characteristics, we'll be an attractant to others who don't know Jesus. A second part of producing fruit is helping grow the family of God. We ourselves can't do it, but we're expected to help prepare the soil, sow seeds. Jesus told us to go out and make disciples of all nations. And God is the one who ultimately changes people's hearts. Some of us have been studying a series by Ray Vanderland called As the world may know. And in our last study, he was talking about a a vineyard or a gon. Each part of the garden or the vineyard is owned by different individuals or families. And they all need to work together to support the garden and by extension, the broader community. Our job individually and collectively is to tend the soil so that others, sorry, to tend the soil for others so God can provide the increase. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about believers being part of a body. He says, the body is a unit, although it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, and so it is with Christ. We all have different gifts and collectively need to use them to help build the broader community. So one of the many good things about being God's family is we don't have to, Nor should we try to go at it alone. Yes, uh, some of us are introverts and we recharge our batteries by being by ourselves at times. Regardless, it's really important that we keep in touch with other Christians to help us know what God's will for our lives is, to keep us on the right path, to pray and praise God together, to support each other, to reach out to others, and just to bask in his goodness and his love for us. So in summary, we've looked at two parables. The parable of the wise and foolish servants and the parable of the unfruitful fig tree. While Jesus has specific messages for the leaders and the nation, there's certainly an application for us. Jesus will be returning on a date and time we aren't aware of. Each of us needs to make a decision whether to accept him or reject him. And Those who choose to reject Jesus will in turn be rejected by God. Those who truly accept him must be ready for his return. We need to examine our lives to see if there's anything that's a barrier between us and God and be willing to deal with that. Thankfully, we're part of a bigger community, a body of believers And individually and collectively, we're to prepare that garden for others so that they could take root and grow into the family of God. So who's ready and willing for that one? I'd ask uh, Phil and Fern if they'd come back up, please, and we'll have uh, one closing song. Heavenly Father, we just again thank you for your great love. We thank you for this time when we remember your Son came to earth for us. Father, may nobody leave here without Jesus today. Help us all, Father, just to examine ourselves and to remove any barriers that are holding us back from a more fuller, loving relationship with you. May we be like those obedient servants, like those disciples who stay close to the teacher. And may we be a fragrance for those who don't know Jesus. May you get the honor and glory.